Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. All right, welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. I'm going to say that again because I said all right right before I started talking. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. We are here recording on the birthday of Yellowstone National Park and our park system, actually, because Yellowstone was the first national park. You won't hear this till a little bit later, but we've got a guest that is a, a solid representative of Yellowstone. I'm joined tonight by host Jason Loftus and our guest, Max Waugh. Max, welcome to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Uh, you guys are breaking me in on the podcast front. That was my first one. So, Well, this is going to be a pretty easy, gentle experience. <laughs> Check back with me at the end. <laughs> yeah, we'll ask again when we're done. So, Max, uh, for our listeners that don't know you, who are you? Where are you? How did you begin your photographic journey? I am based in Seattle, first of all, born and bred here, uh, with the exception of three, what I call dark years, moving to Eastern Washington, which was uh, in middle school and a complete change of pace from uh, coming from the Western side of the state. I was able to get back uh, to the West side, back to the Seattle area. And I went to the University of Washington and have been based here ever since. Um, and uh, met my wife in college, and she is also from the area. So we are not going anywhere, probably for the rest of our lives. But um, I am a full-time professional photographer, and uh, I do a lot of work in Yellowstone. And um, I want to say, actually, kind of where I got started was back in college. I took a photo course, probably my last year of school. Like, I, I spent a lot of time trying to find something else to do thinking okay well if i'm an art major that's not i'm not gonna be able to make a living from that and so okay well let's try business or something else both of my parents were historians i tried some history and nothing interests me so i circled back around and finally basically in my last year of school i got to get into the dark room and it was amazing i was using my dad's old olympus om1 camera if anybody still remembers that it was uh, I, I still miss that body, the feel, the buttons and everything like that. And the little light meter that would just dance up and down and stuff. Um, but I really enjoyed the darkroom work, but the parental funding was going to run out. And so at that point, I just had to get the degree. And um, so, yeah, graduated and then was just self-taught. I actually started out doing a lot of sports photography, too. I was in the marching band, which is where I met my wife. And so I remember after I graduated, I talked the band into letting me be their traveling photographer because they had a full-time photographer for the home games. But I would travel to the away games, so I'm just like, let me bring my camera and, you know, I'll take pictures of the band and the cheer squad and everything. And then after a while, I'd start sneaking peeks over my shoulder and start taking photos of the football action. And then there was a magazine and website, one of these recruiting websites that follows the, the Huskies and they liked my stuff. And so they let me shoot a game for them. And then that kind of ballooned into the UW eventually saw my stuff and I actually shot for the UW and their athletic department for about five years. And so at that point I had to sort of make a decision, sports or nature. And really the decision had to be made when I had to get a new lens. I broke my old lens, the old Sigma 50 to 500. I dropped it on the track before a game. And so at that point, it's like, okay, I got to go big. But do I go for like a 400-2.8, which is like what a lot of the football guys are using? Or do I go with something longer because I'm interested in wildlife? And so I chose the longer lens. And at that time, the wildlife photography was not paying as well or as consistently as the sports photography. But um, I went that direction. It was a smart choice. Um, but like so many people, I was still working another job on the side. All the photography stuff was sort of independent and uh it took about boy it wasn't until 2010 where we closed my company down um by then i was a partner with a couple other guys it just wasn't working out my wife still had a job so we had benefits and decided at that point okay well now's as good as time good a time as any i guess to try do this thing full time and see how it goes so that's when the decision was made. Um, and I mean, there's a lot more backstory to it, you know, but one thing I always point to is that 10 year period 
uh, where I was working for that company. I wasn't paid very much, but I always exchanged that for flexibility with the travel schedule. So that allowed me to start going back to Yellowstone a lot. Pretty soon we started traveling internationally, getting all these experiences under my belt. So when I went full time and decided I wanted to start leading trips, which is what I do now, I'd made all these contacts and visited a lot of these different places. And so that kind of set me up unintentionally for the career I have now. And a lot of these people that I met on those first trips, partners overseas and things like that, I still work with them to this day. So it's kind of cool to see how that evolved, I guess. I think I tell people often that there's a direct correlation between sports photography and wildlife photography. You're looking for those intimate moments, number one. You're photographing action. A lot of times you're photographing in low light. So the same challenges that present itself as a, as a wildlife photographer, you have a lot more opportunity to practice if you just go down and photograph your high school sports team or, or even junior high sports team for that matter. You're still going to learn a lot. It's also amazing how it's not just one sport, right? Like I, I, I noticed this, like if I go back and these days I mainly just shoot football games still, but shooting basketball is different. Shooting soccer is totally different. Volleyball, all these things, you know, and, and so you pick up different lessons from different sports too. So anybody who's going out there with the intention of doing that, you can learn different lessons depending on the type of sport you're photographing. Absolutely. And I want, I want to clarify one thing. UW is, is the University of Wyoming. It's not the University mm -hmm. of Washington. As far as I, I'm, <laughs> as long as I've been around, it's, uh, yeah, well, you know, we also call them the dogs. And then we have got the University of Georgia people on my back about that. So, or sometimes we just refer to it as the U and then you get the University of Utah people that are getting on our case about it. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not original, I suppose, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll remain loyal. <laughs> <laughs> So what, what was the, when you initially decided that that was going to be your business model leading the trips, what was the first thought that you had? Was it Yellowstone because you spent so much time there it was definitely Yellowstone. or did you have somewhere else? Yeah, it was, it was definitely Yellowstone because by then, you know, I'd been traveling. To, my first trip for photography was with a group of friends back in 2000. And the next year I was the only one who wanted to come back. And so I came back on my own. I came back the next year and the next year. And, you know, back then I was like, I didn't know what I was doing, but I would just take these summer trips and go back, just road trip back on my own. Sometimes I could convince people to go, but you know, by then I'd had like, I don't know, you fast forward 10 years and maybe like 15 to 20 trips under my belt, something like that. I knew the park pretty well. And so I definitely felt comfortable at that point that, you know, when it was time. And I think I started maybe uh, in the fall and uh, just had some informal clients that his friends basically come out and I, you know, guided them around. But, you know, I felt that uh, that was kind of my comfort zone. And then I think the next one after that was like two years later. No, it was the next year it was to Costa Rica, which was another place I'd been to a few times, like four or five times by then. And so I definitely picked out spots that I was more comfortable with. Uh, I've never had this firm belief that I should just go to a place for the first time with clients. Uh, you know, some, every photographer treats this differently, but sometimes what I'll do is um, if I'm going to a location I'm familiar with, but I want to check out something new, maybe with a trip, I'll offer a scouting extension that has come along with me. I'm not going to mark it up or something like that. Let's go check this out and enjoy it together. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, but um, you know, in, an optional day five kind of yeah, thing. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've definitely been some places where it hasn't worked, but there have been some other ones like, wow, this is amazing. Everybody got in on it at a cheaper price and they had a great time. And then for future trips, of course, you know, that'll be part of the main trip, but uh, yeah, Yellowstone still is where I feel most comfortable. It's the only place outside of the Pacific Northwest that I can go and handle all the logistics myself that's good and bad, but whenever I do an international trip, I want to work with somebody who's on the ground over there dealing with currency and language and things like that. And so Yellowstone, at least I can still manage all that stuff myself. So one other question that I had is looking at your feed, there's not a lot of representatives of the Pacific Northwest in there. No. <laughs> and especially in my early years, I was really bad about that uh, because I had limited time, but I had unlimited time off at work, but I had limited funds. Let's put it that way. Uh, so I had to pick and choose my spots. And I always was more intrigued by other places. Um, the Pacific Northwest, if you know where to go, in my opinion, and really put in the legwork, 
you can find some interesting stuff, but it's also not the type of place that's going to have the sheer variety of a place like Yellowstone or Africa or the tropical rainforest, which I love. So I, in those early years, especially, I just, I wanted to get out and I wasn't sure if I'd ever go back to Africa again. So of course that was a big deal. You know, we went, I felt it was all out. We went for three weeks. I mean, compared to some people that travel there for two months, that's nothing. But for us at the time, my wife and I, that was a huge trip. And so, you know, I just wanted to get out and get those experiences under my belt and just see a lot more variety. Um, I am not necessarily beholden just to the mammals, at least not as much as I used to be, but I have an appreciation for birds. I love the small stuff. I really love the rare stuff too. And so going to these places and even coming back to them now, you know, you're always going to see something new. And that's, that's the great thing. You guys know Yellowstone is like that all the time. You have a new experience every time you go. Yeah. We were talking before the show last, the last time that I went, uh, well, when Jason and I were out there, I got to see a mountain lion, never seen a mountain lion in the park. I've seen tracks, but I've never seen a cat. And, and it was a very brief sighting. I'll give it that. And very lazy sighting because it was laying down and all I saw was the head turn. That was it. Uh, no images, but it was a great sighting and, and something that I've never seen up there. And something I've still never seen there. I've seen a lot of mountain lions or pumas in my life now, but never in the park. And I would be just as excited about that first one as I would have been about, you know, the very first one that I saw elsewhere, probably. So, yeah. So, you know, you also just such an amazing place because you just never know what you're going to see. I mean, we've had friends that have, you know, had encounters with just incredible, you know, wolf encounters, uh, taking down prey, coyotes, taking down coyotes, coyotes, taking down foxes. Uh, you know, it's just, you just never know what you're going to come across. And the other beautiful thing is it's different season to season too, you know, and you can go there in the fall and just have some amazing elk activity. You can go there in the summer. Um, the bison rut is going on a lot of time, you know, in July. Um, you go there in the spring and late spring and you got bear activity like crazy. It's just, there's just always something to see. And I've always told people, you know, Yellowstone is one of my favorite places on the planet. It's just just such a big area and so much to see. You just never know what you're going to come across when you go. So it's always, a, it's always an adventure, but anyways. Well, and I think that appreciation for it also is useful when you're dealing with like ever increasing crowds as we have been in recent years. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's obviously the, a lot that goes into the national park experience. Part of that is the people, but uh, you know, I know, I know a lot of folks that don't visit the park at the same time of year that they used to, um, merely because of the crowd. But I mean, if you're willing to, you know, pay the, pay the price a little bit for some of that stuff and, uh, you know, you still get a lot out of it, don't you? Um, by, by being there. And, and it's very easy oftentimes to get away from, from the crowds, whether it's just a matter of waking up early enough, you know, be out there before nine o'clock in the morning or, um, you know, maybe actually getting out on foot occasionally and checking out some different areas and you can definitely be rewarded. It's funny you said that early morning and late evening. It's, I love it. When you're out there, then the sun's coming up, and you got you're right. You got a good hour to two hours before it starts getting kind of busy, and that's a lot of times when the best stuff's happening, anyways. And then it's always amazing to me right around that five six o'clock time frame in the evening, you know, the cars just start disappearing from the park, and you're like, "Where are you people going? I mean, this is this is prime time. What are you doing? You know?" But yeah, so that's that's always a bonus. <laughs> Leaving the park before they put the animals back in the holding pens oh that's right yeah they gotta yeah, gotta cage them again <laughs> for those of you who are unaware i am kidding that was facetious that's, clear. that's a question that is often asked in yellowstone national park when are they going to let the animals out so so max you've been a lot of places and we're going to get into some of these other trips but just kind of to get things rolling what is your favorite ever outdoor experience? Uh, it actually is North American um, and uh, was tied to a Yellowstone trip, but it didn't happen in Yellowstone. Um, this was 2008 and uh, there was an online community before social media uh, that was all about Yellowstone. There's a photographer who came on there and was sharing photos from his property in Utah. And his family had some property up in the Wasatch Mountains, south of Salt Lake City. And they had a couple of natural springs that were on this property. And so there were a lot of animals that were coming to these springs. They had actually set up two tree stands 
And I think maybe they were like leasing them out to hunters that wanted to come in and maybe get an elk or they had bears coming in. And eventually he starts posting photos of a mountain lion that was coming to the property and drinking from these springs. And he just threw it out there. He's like, anybody who wants to come down, give it a try. Come on down. So it's like, okay, well, I had never seen a mountain lion before. And so I cut my fall trip short. Uh, I was going out there uh, to Yellowstone for whatever. It's supposed to be a week, I think. And so I decided to leave a couple days early. And it actually worked out in that regard, too, because the morning I left, I had to go down the west side of the park and go out the west Yellowstone entrance. On my way down from Gardner on the west side, the canyon pack of wolves had made a kill, maybe like 50 yards off the road. And by the time I showed up, there was already a big crowd in place and there's trees everywhere. And so there was very limited real estate. So you just had to show up, sit down, park yourself where you had an opening where you could kind of see the elk carcass that was there and then just wait. And eventually the wolves did come out and it was one of my best early wolf shoots. But uh, so I did that and then got back in the car, took off and drove down to Salt Lake City. So I meet, meet up with a guy and... Um, so I spent the night and then the very next morning we go up to the property and he situates himself in this ground hide, maybe like a hundred yards back from the two springs. And he puts me up in one of the tree stands, which is like 40 yards away, maybe 20 feet off the ground. And so I'm sitting up there. Uh, I don't, I didn't own any camouflage back then. So I just wear my earth tones and everything like that. I had some bear spray with me, um, sat around that morning and nothing happened. Meanwhile, he's in the ground blind and he's hearing all sorts of noise in the bushes and he's got a big fat black bear that's somewhere up there. So he gets out the bear spray at one point, just in case bear goes away. Okay. So we strike out in the morning, get back in the car and I immediately start coughing uncontrollably because he's forgotten to put the safety back on his bear spray and it discharged the moment he sat down in the car. <laughs> so for the next six hours or so, I've got this cough and I have a greater appreciation for the way bear spray actually works. Um, so that, that was interesting. And then we went back for the afternoon session. And so I got back up in the tree stand and the moment the sun dropped behind the mountains, the mountain lion walked out of the woods, came right to the water, and didn't see me for probably the first minute. It looked up and it's some, I don't know what he was doing in that hide on the ground, but it saw him immediately. Like it immediately focused its attention on this guy that's a hundred yards away. Meanwhile, I'm up fumbling with my gear. My hands are shaking and everything, not because I'm scared of mountain lion, but I'm scared of missing out on the shots. I mean, first mountain lion. And so it didn't see me for the first minute. I managed to get some shots, I think probably with my 40D, I think it was Canon 40D. And uh, 500 millimeter, I kind of switched to the wider lens. Eventually it kind of, it saw me moving up there and kind of stared at me. Went right back to drinking for another minute. Got up, walked away. That was it. I'm like, okay, I was supposed to stay here another day, but that's it. Done. It's not going to get better than that. So walked away and went home. And to me, that is still my most special encounter. I've seen Pumas. That's still my mo only North American mountain lion, but I've seen a lot of Pumas since then in Costa Rica and down in Chile and Patagonia. Um, but uh, that, that is still the most special experience because I think a North American mountain lion, it, it's different from the Latin American ones, which are more comfortable with people, don't have as wide of a range generally, just based on food source at least. So yeah, to, to me, that's still, I, I think that's the most special experience today. Okay, I just wanna ask a clarifying question. Did you say you saw a puma in Costa Rica? I've seen seven pumas in Costa Rica. Yeah. In fact, it was two months later. I was down in Costa Rica and I spent, I, I booked a stay at the research station out in the middle of Corcovado National Park, which is generally considered the best wildlife area in, in the entire country. Uh, got hooked up with this guide who's the most amazing tracker I've worked with anywhere in in the world pretty much. Uh, and we just hung out together for eight days. Uh, half those days were rained out. Uh, and actually I got caught in a rainstorm uh, coming back to the station. Both of my camera bodies died. And I was lucky because there was a researcher there who had a dry box. He had taken a cooler and just stuck a light bulb inside. And so he was like, okay, he, he asked to take my bodies. We stuck them both in overnight. And one of them was working the next day. So we go out with my one camera body, my 300 millimeter 2.8 lens. I didn't have my monopod. The airline had lost it. Uh, that's all I had with me. Uh, we're walking down the trail and suddenly there's a bunch of screeching in the distance. And the guide, Felipe, he looks at me, he says, 
there's a cat. Like he knew instantly this was alarm calling, you know, he recognized the sounds. And so he's like, let's go and running down this muddy trail. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he says, okay, stop. So we just stopped there and there's nothing, but we wait another 30 seconds. And sure enough, a puma walks out of the forest coming right at us. And then I look to the side and there's a second one. And the second one is bigger. It's the mom. This first one was a cub, probably like six months old, maybe I'm guessing. And then a third one comes out and it's another cub that has the spider monkey in its jaws. And then that just runs away with the, the prize. And so my guide decides to leave me there with mom and the other cub while he goes and tracks the other one. And so I was like, well, if he feels comfortable enough, leave me here with this cat. She doesn't seem disturbed. So she just sat down like 15 feet away and I just sat down and, and took it all in. I mean, the conditions, it was so dark in there. You know, I came away with maybe two or three photos that really turned out, but, uh, just yeah, that experience, you know, on top of the previous mountain lion experience in Utah, I mean, that was just an amazing stretch for me. Yeah. I'd say that's a pretty good run. Yeah, I know a lot of guys that spend a lot of time in the wild, you know, um, and m not very many people get to see a wild cougar in the wild, you know? Yeah. So and for me, that's pretty, pretty I think special. Yellowstone so far, it's been scat and tracks and that's about it. So, um, so where is your favorite location? It's it's hard for me to pinpoint. Yellowstone is probably still my favorite, but partially because that kind of feels like home. And in fact, you know, because we own property right outside the park now, it is sort of a second home to me. So that always remains special. And, you know, knowing that even when I come home at the end of the day, I can just walk out on my porch and potentially have a moose walking through right there. Or maybe one of the, the foxes comes by or something. That's still special, special because it's more personal, but I will take any place that has a high level of biodiversity. And so that includes Yellowstone, that includes most of these tropical Latin American locations. So Costa Rica, uh, Brazil, where I lead a trip now too, is pretty amazing. And Africa too. Um, the type of place, again, where you can see something new every time you go. And um, you can see anything from the largest predators to the largest ungulates to the smallest, most elusive weasel or mongoose or whatever, and down to the frogs and snakes, too. I'm not good at macro photography, but I love trying it. So, yeah, I'm into all that stuff. So in uh, Brazil, with your Brazil trips, is that primarily for birds? No, that's, uh, that's a mix. Again, now the big draw for most people is jaguars. So we include the Pantanal, which was course is widely thought of as the best location on the planet to see jaguars um, but i also include the amazon in that trip and so we get a totally different type of experience in the pantanal you're riding around on a boat on these rivers you see quite a bit of wildlife and you see some nice birds but the amazon probably has even greater variety and so like the last trip that um, that i led down there between the two locations i think we counted 35 mammal species um, including like 11 species of monkeys and over 175 species of birds and it was not even a birding trip i mean had we just been checking stuff off a list you know that was the main goal sure we would have probably seen more but you know that's the I type think of, that's probably an average trip down there probably yeah absolutely species. and you know i mean to say that you could go down and see five or six species of owls i love owls so that's a big one for me but you know uh, seven species of macaws i think we saw and, who expects to see seven species of macaws? It's kind of crazy, but, and it's also a varied experience too. And I like that because on the Pantanal, a little bit in the Amazon, you're in a boat and you're cruising around. That's your sort of safari vehicle, but there are places where you're on an actual wheeled vehicle in a, a big safari truck or something, or you're on foot, or you're standing up in a canopy tower above, you know, above the, the top of the rainforest and seeing other species that you don't see down below. So, you know, that type of experience too, the way you explore these places and to be able to do it differently like that is also pretty cool. I'm assuming COVID had a pretty big impact on a lot of these trips and these opportunities for at least a year. It did. I, I know I'm still feeling it. A lot of my colleagues who lead trips for sure are feeling it. Um, I had to pretty much cancel the entire 2020 slate, of course. Um, I was fortunate to be able to go back out to Yellowstone once they opened up the park. I mean, again, we have a place out there, so we could just, my dad and I went out and we could isolate there and whatever. That was, that was fine. But yeah, since then we've had to reschedule uh, consistently. And I think this will be the first year where things will feel sort of back to normal, um, but still not entirely. I was supposed to go scout uh, Borneo last year. And Malaysia, as far as I know, still hasn't opened its borders to visitors. 
So that's something that I have to put off until who knows, probably next year. And then who knows when I actually get to lead the tour if it's a successful scouting trip. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, those of us who are lucky to have domestic locations where we're leading trips, I think we've been more fortunate because it's a little easier uh, to set up logistically at least. And people don't have to worry about, you know, some of these restrictions, like every country seems to have different rules in regards to COVID. Um, my Chile, that is the Patagonia trip, you know, Chile is, has a lot of restrictions in place. And even now that they've opened uh, things back up, relatively speaking, you still got to go online and fill out a ton of paperwork compared to other countries. So we're still going to feel it, I think, for the next couple of years, even if we're still at least allowed to lead those trips. That's good to hear. Things are kind of getting back to normal, though, which is expected, obviously, but that's good. Brazil has been on the radar, but primarily because of the the bird diversity. But it's been kind of one of those low level desires i didn't you know you don't equate necessarily you think of around rio and and basically all you're going to get is birds think of how big brazil is and and the the diversity of terrain and kind of ecotones within the country you've got the mountains you've got the you've got the river basin you know all those different things do lend themselves to a good trip, but I think logistically that's got to be one of the tougher ones. Is it not? Uh, it, it helps when you have somebody reliable on the ground. And again, because it's an international destination mm -hmm. for me, it, it took, uh, actually it was one of my clients who is better traveled than me. You know, one of these folks who managed to retire at age 50, uh, and just spends his retirement traveling around the world. And so he put me in touch with a guy down there. Um, and so you have to kind of go on faith oftentimes when you're first getting to these places and maybe somebody has put you in touch with somebody sure. local and you hope it works out. You hope you're, especially if it's your, your naturalist guide, and, you know, this guy not only handles the logistics of the planning side oftentimes, but he's also our naturalist guide in the field. So you're spending a lot of time with these people. So you got to hope that your personalities mesh and that things go well. Um, and in this case they did. And the guy happens to be, his name is Fred Tavares. He happens to be a very accomplished birder. I think he travels overseas to attend birding festivals and things like that. So he's pretty hardcore on the birding front. Mm -hmm. But um, the last time we were there, we were leading a trip. And so we're on the Amazon portion of the trip. And we're going down the river in the boat. And suddenly we're turning around. And so I look back at my driver who doesn't really speak much English. But uh, I asked him what was going on. And he says, there's a giant armadillo. And... I thought he was joking uh, because the giant armadillo, it turns out, is one of the rarest species to see in South America. Oh, wow. um, in terms of like medium to large mammals, it is one of the most elusive species. And all I had seen before that was I would show up at random research stations in South America and see like camera trap footage. It's like, yeah, we're trapping to do jaguars or something like that to check the patterns. And then, oh, look, we got a giant armadillo. That's amazing. That's all I would ever see photo wise. And so suddenly he's telling us we're, you know, there's a giant armadillo that is out during the day. It's a nocturnal species. So we turn around and we buzz back down the boat. And sure enough, we pull up to the shore and the giant armadillo is just taking a drink, I'm assuming, because it's walking right past these people who are the ones that spotted it. It walked, you know, right past their legs. And this is a creature that's 100 pounds, you know, up to their knees and just waddles on down the trail. So we all get out and we just slowly follow the thing. And then it just sits down in the middle of the trail, kind of turns profile to us. And we start shooting. I mean, the, all the group, except for one client who decided to hang back because he was feeling under the weather, we're all there. And Fred and I, we're just geeking out about this. We're kind of giggling and, you know, just shooting like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. The clients have no idea what's going on. They're just going with the flow. Okay, well, you know, Max and Fred brought us here. Must, must be something cool, I guess. And it wasn't until afterward and we told him Fred had been guiding for 25 years. That was the first one he ever saw. So it's one of those, you know, we talk about these Holy Grail species. Uh, every continent, I think, has them for wildlife enthusiasts. And, and for me, that definitely qualified as, as one of those. And then as it turned out, I urged Fred to go rush back to the lodge, jump in the boat, go get the other client because we didn't want him to miss out on this opportunity. I don't care if he's vomiting or something like that, you know, bring him back so he can see this. Well, they didn't make it back in time to see ours, which wandered off, but they encountered a second one on the trail and he didn't get photos, but they got to see that one go off. So I think it was a mating pair as it turned out. So 
I went from zero to one. Fred went from zero to two, just like that. And uh, we'll probably never see another one in our lifetime. So, so uh, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty amazing. But it's it's uh, it, it's also good having local guides who get excited about this stuff. Maybe it's the giant armadillo or my clients face, you know, deal with this with me in Yellowstone all the time. If I see something, you know, I, I remember being with some folks and I spotted my first skunk. This was last, last winter. And I had never seen a live striped skunk. I see him as roadkill all the time, but I'd never seen one in Yellowstone, never seen one alive. And so they had to deal with my general excitement. But, you know, if you can find other people that you're working with, or just hanging out with that can really get into that enthusiasm. It makes the experience so much better. You had the same or a similar experience and with a kind of similar family of species in Africa. Yeah, last year I was down in South Africa and I was leading a trip. Um, my wife was with me and we went to the greater Kruger area, including um, Mala Mala Game Reserve, which is one of the best places in the world to photograph leopards. And it was a fantastic trip. Everybody else who was on the trip, it was their first trip to Africa. So like sharing their enthusiasm, you know, and getting to see everything through their eyes for the first time was really cool. But one of the big motivators for me with this trip was finally getting over to the Kalahari and visiting a reserve called Swalu. And um, it's it's been known as one of the better places potentially to see the pangolin in the wild. And, you know, we talk about these holy grail species. Pangolin for a lot of visitors to Africa is up there. A lot of guides never see this thing during their life. And yeah, it's similar to an armadillo in some ways. It's It's got body armor, but it looks like a walking pine cone. So it's these scales uh, that it grows, but it's a mammal. It walks on its hind legs, which is the kind of the odd thing most people don't realize. So it's kind of waddling around like like an old person. And uh, no offense to the old people out there, but you know I waddle around from time to time too. So it's just you know walking slowly on its hind legs, and it's got its cute little claws up, and then it dig just digs for termites and ants the whole time. But uh, I had been planning that visit for like four years because I'd been seeing all this stuff about. They, they have pangolins, they have aardvarks, another holy grail species. They have aardwolves, which another animal I'd never seen. So I was really excited to see the super rare stuff. And then when I finally made it, I was supposed to go to in 2020, COVID pushed it back. And so when we finally arrived, things had completely changed out there. And what had happened was uh, they had been suffering a drought all these years. Um, and it's, you know, it's been a problem at times and especially more recently in parts of Southern Africa. So they had about a four year drought and what the drought meant was it was killing a lot, a lot of the plants off. It was killing off a lot of the bugs that ate the plants because they didn't have as much food. And subsequently it was making it more difficult for the animals, the insectivores that were going to eat those bugs to hunt. So they would come out during the day. People were getting daytime sightings of pangolin and aardvark, these nocturnal species. And so I think that's why we're seeing all these reports and these photos of these animals. By the time we showed up, the drought was over. And so that is great for the environment um, because it was, had a chance to rebound. But the problem for us, first of all, was that a lot of those animals finally died out. And so, of course, you know, that's that's terrible knowing that the only three pangolins that they knew about in the whole reserve had had radio transmitters. So they were research animals, you know, that they had managed to, to capture, but they had not been seeing tracks of any other pangolins. So suddenly the pangolin population has plummeted. And uh, on top of that, because the environment is rebounding, there's grass everywhere. And we're looking for animals that are low to the ground. And the entire reserve, it's a huge reserve, it's covered in this tall, beautiful white grass. And my guide, to his credit, he kept reminding me, oh, isn't this fantastic? Isn't this beautiful? It's like, yeah, but I, unfortunately, I'm not really into landscapes as much. And so, you know, I, I love getting some of the antelope and maybe a rhino if we can get in the tall grass. But I'm here to see the stuff that's under that grass and we're going to have a problem finding them. So I, I was kind of despondent a little bit, but then we had a chance one night to go out um, with the help of the research team. We used the radio telemetry. And it was, you know, kind of a scavenger hunt in a way, you know, using the telemetry to track down this animal was actually really interesting to see how it worked and really fun too. And then we were rewarded at the end with maybe like about a 20 minute encounter again in that long grass. But I mean, frankly, the, the photos turned out way better than I expected given the conditions. So I was really, really happy with that. Yeah. I think the duration of the encounter would be mitigated by the, the thrill of the effort 
to get there and to find and it. And it was also something where I, at the very end, I just decided, you know what? I don't know how much more time we're going to have with this animal. We'll, we'll probably not see another one while we're here because it's been so challenging to find them. And so finally it was, it was coming right toward me. And so I just put the camera down and just sat there and watched it. I didn't have time to pull out the cell phone just and even get a video. I got no yeah. video for, of the encounter or anything, but it walked right by me. And I just watched the sands like it walked into the darkness. I'm like, that is the coolest animal I've ever seen in my life. And so that right there, I mean, that was, that was it for me. The trip was made. And by the way, we paid a ton of money. I mean, this place is high end and it's challenging <laughs> to get to and everything like that. And, you know, but my wife was very happy with the experience. She loved the lodge and, you know, she took a lot of great pictures herself too. She doesn't really do much photography, but she really nailed a lot of great shots, including of the pangolin. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that made the trip. My, my attitude flipped 180 degrees at that point. Mm -hmm. And it was like, whatever else comes. And we did actually in the next 20 minutes after that, we saw an aardvark and an aardwolf on the drive back. Nothing photographable, no but way. we saw like the Holy Trinity right there in 20 minutes. And so, you know, all that was just the cherry on top, really. So, Sounds to me like you need to buy a property right outside of Vegas. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's we, awesome. We've also well, all got her. If nothing, Go Sorry, Ron. If nothing else, this should uh, stir some enthusiasm for joining you on these trips because the encounters... Yeah, no, well, and... You know, I don't know. I don't know if, how you guys feel, but you know, for me, it's just like every time you go to a place, whether it's familiar or not, whether the the actual animal you see is familiar or not. For me, if I'm seeing something new in a new location or doing a new thing or whatever, I get excited about that. Um, that's something fun and interesting and different to shoot, first of all. Uh, but you know, it's also like it's information you can file away. So you know, seeing that first mountain lion in Yellowstone, or for me, the first skunk. Um, it always gives me something new to watch out for. It's like, oh yeah, 15 years ago, I was driving through here and I still remember I saw that skunk here. So I'm going to keep looking just in case, cause you never know. And right. so that always enhances the experience for me. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I get excited about the, the lesser known things and especially things I've never photographed before. It's funny you mentioned the skunk. This last Yellowstone trip we were on, I do the same thing. I find myself doing the same thing. And, uh, some friends of ours mentioned that they had been seeing some badgers coming you know not out of the den because they don't hibernate right but just coming out early because there was just not that much snow and it meant, at the whole trip i was like man it'd be cool to see a badger in the snow you know because i love badgers they're one of my favorite animals and and i had some really good encounters last spring and it had been a quite a while like three or four years before last spring since i'd had an encounter so anyways that the whole trip i was like yep just come on man every time we drive across the the open areas and that i'd be speed spying looking for a badger out running around but yeah it's funny we do that i think all of us do that and every time every time we have an encounter like that it just adds one more critter to the list of things that we're constantly looking for but yeah and i also try and you know try and convey that attitude and again we talked about enthusiasm um about some of these encounters and sightings but i i try and at least convey that to my clients that are on trips um, you know, like the folks that were with us for the giant armadillo, they didn't understand quite was what was going on. They had an appreciation, a greater appreciation for it afterward. But um, I, I like to think that my enthusiasm for even the smaller stuff will, you know, it, it'll educate people maybe if I get a chance to talk about the animal more. But also maybe it'll spark a little bit more enthusiasm from certain people uh, about these species that they otherwise may not appreciate. And I, I found myself in that same situation, I think several years ago, I was not into birds very much at all. I liked owls, but it wasn't until I took a trip to Peru where it was specifically a birding trip and I had no choice but to photograph birds the entire time or else I was just going to be sitting there twiddling my thumbs pretty much. Um, and, and that really helped me kind of gain an appreciation for those animals too. And, you know, now I, I would still generally prefer to shoot a mammal, but unless it's an owl, you put me in front of an owl and I'm, I'm in a happy place. But, but I have such a greater appreciation for like bird behavior. And of course the sheer variety and beauty of some of these species. And the highlight of my entire year was from that trip where, uh, I stayed, I sat in a lek 
um, for three days. And in that case, it was for uh, the marvelous spatula tail hummingbird, which is considered by some to be the most beautiful species. It's got these two long tail rackets that come out from the behind. And, you know, it does this midair dance that uh, David Attenborough showed on one of his shows where it kind of goes back and forth and flashes its tail rackets in midair for the female. Um, but so, you know, I'm inside this just tangle of vines and branches waiting for a male to show up and display or flick his tail at uh, females. And uh, there are only like 800 to 1,000 left on the planet. So being able to do that day after day and just kind of put in the work and then ultimately to be rewarded with some decent shots. I didn't get the midair dance. In fact, it's like my, the biggest miss of my career, as far as I'm concerned, is being able to document that with a still photo. But just getting some beautiful shots of this amazing creature perched there. Uh, I came away from that trip with a different attitude about it. So I always hope that maybe I can change somebody else's attitude about something that, you know, an animal they're taking for granted or otherwise don't appreciate as much. Yeah, to me, every time you're out, it's an opportunity to learn something new, too, you know. And I think like you're, you've, you've hinted to this quite a bit, but it's all about the attitude and your perspective when you go out in the field. And, you know, every time I've photographed a new species, I've always looked at it as this is an opportunity to learn something new, learn about this animal, learn about this bird, learn about their behaviors. Um, you know, trying to get the right shot, you've got to sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you've got to figure out what their behaviors are before you can get that shot, you know. And to me, that's part of the fun and the challenge. And my my world's been broadened quite a bit lately too um into you know i've mentioned reptiles and some of the other birds and that that i've been chasing as of late and it's just the the opportunities are endless if your mind's open and, and a lot of my knowledge also has uh, kind of expanded after the fact and it comes from you know oftentimes i come back from one of these trips and especially to an exotic location i've got this list of species that i've written down i wasn't familiar with them so my guides told me the names and so sometimes there's stuff lost in translation or oftentimes the scientists have gone and changed the name of the species. So when I'm processing the photos, which I don't really enjoy all that much, I'd much rather be in the field. I think we all would. Uh, but, you know, doing the keywording and, you know, the file naming stuff, I got to make sure I get the right, right file names and everything like that. So I'm usually on Google or Wikipedia looking these animals up. And so that's oftentimes when I ingest even more information. You know, you learn stuff from your guides and of course being there in person, as you say, watching the behavior. But then you get even more background when you start, you know, at least for me, kind of by accident, I start soaking in all this extra information. And uh, the downside is sometimes, you know, I might rattle on a, a little too much about that in front of the clients, but uh, some of them find it interesting, so. <laughs> I don't, I, you're, just, you're just helping them you know, understand yeah, the passion and, you know, maybe they catch it right. So that's, that could never be a bad thing. When my kids enjoyed spending time with me a long, long time ago, <laughs> they, uh, that was always what we went for. We always went for the first, you know, what's, what are we going to see that's new today that you've never seen before? And it, it doesn't take long and it doesn't take much, you know, creativity to find something that you haven't observed because it, you know, after a while you're seeing the same species, but they're seeing different behaviors and to see them start to pick up on that was, uh, was a win as a dad when they were, you know, especially when they were smaller. Well, and I figure, I, I don't know, you you, I think your kids are all older than mine. I have a five-year-old at home and I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to barging in here at some point pretty soon here, but, um, yeah, so hopefully, I, I don't know if they're at the age yet, but I know from my personal uh, experience growing up, like my parents were outdoorsy types and, you know, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, my dad was a little bit of a sort of an amateur mountaineer. And so he dragged me all over the place and we'd go camping and hiking. And I sort of got tired of that after a while, um, probably because it was the thing that my parents were forcing me to do, I would say. Um, I, I really had to rediscover the passion for it on my own and so i imagine i don't know if your kids are there yet but hopefully as they get older they'll start to kind of come back around i mean they may not have even left altogether you know focusing on other things but i still remember my first trip to yellowstone i was 12 years old at that point and my dad would drag me into the car and i would just sleep the entire time i just i couldn't handle it and now when he comes with me and you know he's uh what just turned 80 i'm the one dragging him into the car at uh, you know four in the morning so so it works out. Well, that's what I was. Yeah. Oh, how the turntables. <laughs> that's what I was going to ask you, you know, coming from the Pacific Northwest, most people think of that as like the landscape photographers Mecca in, uh, 
especially in North America and the U.S. So where did your love for wildlife come from? Did it come from those trips with your dad and being drug out at four in the morning or does that? It was just something that naturally developed as as a kid. I think many, many of us, and I've listened you know, to some of you guys' other podcasts, and it seems like a lot of a lot of us in this field just developed this interest early on. For me, it was a combination of animals and art. I was very artistic as a kid. And so those, you know, kind of developed in a parallel pattern, I guess. But, you know, I would get these, um, they just supplied me with all these wildlife books. You know, maybe it was like some special tome from National Geographic or something. The one that really stands out to me is the uh, National Geographic Book of Mammals. It's actually a two-volume set, right? And it didn't list every mammal on the planet, but, you know, it listed everything alphabetically. And so you can go through there and just see all sorts of stuff. And, and I still remember um, there was one animal listed for Q, the letter Q, and that was the quokka. And I was like, Okay, this is just weird, but I never forgot the quokka. And so then when I finally got a chance to do a trip to Australia, um, decades later, it's like, I don't care where I have to go. I'm going to go find the quokka because I remember that, the letter Q. Now, there are other Q animals, as it turns out. There's even another one in Australia. I didn't even know about that. It was just like all about the quokka. And it turns out the quokka, of course, is a small, small marsupial that is dubbed the happiest animal on the planet because when you look at their face, it looks like they just have this little smile the whole time. It's just totally natural, Perm this little grin on their face. And, and now like the quokka <laughs> selfie is a big thing. But we flew all the way across Australia uh, to Perth, went out to Rottnest Island, which is where the main population of quokkas is, and just hung out there for like five hours or whatever. And they're totally habituated. Of course, they're used to all these people just like walking and biking around on this tiny island. Uh, but, but I got my quokkas. And let me tell you, quokka mugs sell like hotcakes. It's amazing, the quokka mug. So if you're looking for your uh, intro into the paying life of a wildlife photographer. Cute does sell. <laughs> small island off the That's right. Off Perth. Yeah. yeah. I have Get not sold enough mugs to like pay for the ticket down there and across the country and the ferry and everything <laughs> else. But still, you know. It's... You don't want to kill people's <laughs> dreams, Max. Don't tell them that kind of stuff. And of course, an animal named Quokka <laughs> yes. would come from yeah. Australia. And the other one. So now I want to go back and I want to see the qual, Q-U-O-L-L. -L. And that's another thing. It looks like an oversized rat, but it's got a spotted coat. So it's actually sort of pretty too. But that's mm -hmm. uh, they've, they've got so much unique stuff down there. And I would love to get back down there. It's a fantastic birding place too. So uh, someday we'll, we'll do a trip down there. I have clients who are continuously asking me to do tours, but uh, I just want to get down there on my own. Because it's a massive country, just like we're talking about the U.S. Obviously, has uh, different biomes, and Brazil also. It's the, it's the same thing. It's similar size, and there's such a variety there that uh, you could spend two months and still have a lot to go. I think. So you've you've had a lot of opportunities. You've been all over the world photographing. Um, is there a species that you still have not photographed that you're that you would like to capture? Yeah, so I got my pangolin out of the way. That was number one. Uh, the number one before that was the Canada lynx. Uh, finally saw that in Manitoba a couple of years ago. The photos weren't great, so that is still way up there. Uh, but in terms of a species that I haven't seen at this point, I'd say a wolverine probably. Um, you know, again, we talk about holy grail species, and it's something that you know I may not see in my entire life. I know where to go if I want to photograph them. I, I, that That is easy. If you want to photograph a wolverine, you go to uh, the border between Finland and Russia and you go to the hides there because that's, I'd estimate 90% or more of the photos you see of wild wolverines come from that location. Um, for those that don't know, they are baited. And so, you know, you sit in a hide right. all night long and they put out um, deer carcasses for wolverines, uh, for brown bears, and wolves come in too. Um, and so if you want to see a wolverine in the wild, that is absolutely the place you go, but I'm not interested in seeing it on those terms. So I may never, may never see one. Um, but yeah, right now that's, that's the top of the list. Uh, and, uh, well, we'll see. I don't know. I might get lucky. I've had a little luck, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys, uh, are aware of John Marriott, a Canadian photographer, but I believe last year, uh, he was out there in the woods looking for mountain lions and, Saw a lynx and a wolverine on the same kill site. So if it can happen for him, it can happen to anybody, right? 
Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and time more so now, especially as the parent parent of a young child, I'm I'm discovering that more and more. Right. But uh, you know, balancing work and family time is is so important. And uh, yeah, I, I almost I didn't suffer burnout, but actually, before we even knew we were going to have a child, uh, the the year before uh, he was born. I think that year is 2016 and I spent in the first eight months of the year, I was only home for about five weeks and that's how much I was traveling. And my wife, she was fine with it. She's like, if you got to go do it, go do it. And, uh, she, you know, she came to Australia with me. So at least we got our trip together. But after those eight months, it was just like, this is too much. You know, I, I, I can't do this constantly. Uh, National Geographic, maybe it used to be the dream way back when, when I was younger and naive. Uh, but I, I can't live that type of lifestyle. And that's what a lot of those guys do, right? They're gone for two or three months at a time. And uh, so then you add a kid to the mix and then that's that's really out the window. So uh, even to this day, you know, I probably, from the business aspect of things, I should probably be leading more trips. And, uh, but I, I've chosen to purposely cut back in order to find, you know, that, that balance and, uh, to especially be there in these sort of prime, hopefully fun years, uh, raising a young kid too, and, and hopefully be there to kind of, I don't know, get him inspired and interested in this stuff. Right, right now I'm failing at that. He likes bison, but he doesn't really think much of other animals. So got to keep bringing him back out to the park and maybe eventually he'll like seeing the otters and the wolves and everything else. That's funny. You said that I, I think to me, it's the trick and nowadays is just to give kids an appreciation for the outdoors, you know, whether or not, you know, I, like my son at one point, Ron knows was maybe thinking about, you know, doing some videography stuff and he would go on a lot of trips with me. <clears throat> he's 19 now, you know, he's got a car, he's got a job, he's got a girlfriend you know, he's got other things he's doing and he still does come with me once in a while, but he's not near as, in, as engaged in that as he used to be, which obviously we were all there at one point, right? But, you know, I think the trick is I hope that I've just implanted some amount of appreciation for those experiences and those the, that time in the outdoors and what that allows him to have, you know, that relationship with the outdoors. Um, yeah. So anyways, and then I'm, you know, I'm sure it'll stick with him, hopefully. I mean, that's all, you know, I think that's all you can hope for as a parent, right? And I think it's critical in today's time to, to introduce kids and other people to the outdoors. But This actually kind of ties into something for me too. Like I know zoos are sort of a controversial topic, but one of the reasons that I find value, not in game farms, I, I want to be very clear about that, not, not in game farms for photography or anything, but, but having zoos as an educational tool in places where, kids will maybe not have an opportunity to get out into the wild on their own. And maybe you live in, a, in an urban area and there's just not a whole lot around. You may have local parks and you can do some birding and stuff like that. But, but to inspire kids at a young age to have some of these resources where, you know, you can expose them at least so they can see the sheer size of the, some of these animals or the, I'm going to say bizarre, but the unique attributes of some of these species that we wouldn't find in our own backyard. I think that's, yeah, I think that's another critical element of it. And so, you know, we, we are lucky, you know, that we are living in the West close to some of these more open spaces away from civilization and we can get out there. Uh, but obviously a lot of people aren't, or maybe it's just not in the budget to be able to do that. And so any way that people can do that, and maybe that's going to a zoo or it's checking out photos that, and videos that photographers and videographers are posting online any of that type of exposure at a young age, hopefully will instill something. I don't expect my son to be a, well, I don't expect him to be a photographer um, or a biologist or anything like that, but you're right. I mean, as long as they, they can with, you know, retain something and withhold that appreciation for when they get older and hopefully pass it on to the next generation, even if they never actively do a whole lot with it, then I don't know, something positive has come out of it. Well said. I don't, yeah, I don't envy you as a parent I mean, my kids, well, I'm going to, I'm going to clarify my kids okay, grew up at a time where, you know, it was still go play, go find your friends, get out, get outside. And now, you know, things have changed significantly. Um, you, there's concern, especially in certain parts of our nation, certain parts of the world, kids are taken from time to time and, there is a little bit more concern. So parents are a little bit more, uh, 
uh, what would you say? A little bit more observant, guarded as to how much time their kids spend away from them. And also with social media growing by leaps and bounds, keeping your kids off of social media is getting harder and harder. And so I guess what I was trying to say is I feel fortunate that my kids grew up when I, when they did, I feel fortunate that I grew up when I did and I don't envy, you know, parents these days, but I have heard some great ideas, some from people on this podcast about how to instill that love of nature in their, in their children. But I, I think it's tougher and tougher to keep your kids outside. Mm. Actually, our son is growing up in the house that I grew up in. And so this for me was a neighborhood where there were at least four or five other kids my age and we could just, yeah, run off and be gone all day or whatever, jump over fences and, you know, go through three yards or whatever to hang out and everything like that. And yeah, it's, it's not like that anymore. Um, but, you know, again, we're fortunate to have this home away from home out near the park. And I'm really excited because he is finally old enough to start going out on trails with me. It's actually given me a reason to start exploring some aspects of Yellowstone specifically that I'm not familiar with. Uh, you know, I can give my wife a break. She loves just hanging out at the cabin and relaxing. It's her vacation. That's what she wants to do. So I'll, I'll grab him. We'll, we'll go find a trail. And now he's old enough. He's only five, but still, I mean, I, I think what, even two years ago, I think he did like 11 miles in three days. And it was on trails that I had not gotten to myself because I'm usually driving around the car looking for wildlife. You know, that's the, the best way to cover the park from my perspective. So he gives me an excuse now to explore new areas and uh, seems to be into it. I mean, he moans and complains if we're walking too far, of course, at his age. But still, I mean, he still, you know, has, I don't want to say an appreciation, but enough of an enthusiasm for it that. I think it's enriching for both of us because I'm definitely Perfect. getting to see some new stuff now too. So where's the next tour going to take place? Uh, officially it's Patagonia. I'm going to go back down for the Pumas. Um, I think you, you guys have had at least uh, one or two folks come and talk about the Puma experience down there. It really is incredible. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that. And then after that, uh, I'll be doing some local stuff actually. Um, never, never kind of finished my point about uh, exploring the Pacific Northwest, but it's something I'm trying to do better uh, now just, uh, you know, because I, I spent so much time focusing on these so-called exotic places that I never took time to explore my own backyard. And it wasn't until I became full-time professional that I could finally allocate some time to, to go out, like especially around here in winter, it's a good birding time. Um, you know, you get the raptors coming in. Uh, there are some good spots for like short-eared owls, for example, which is a great photo subject. Um, and so, so I started to learn more about those types of things. And then, so at the start of June, I will be going out to one of our local areas that is known for its red foxes and uh, doing a couple of fox workshops there. And then back to Brazil, uh, if everything goes according to plan. And so hopefully we'll see a lot more jaguars and uh, maybe another giant armadillo if I'm lucky. And uh, and then I think I'm doing Alaska actually um, in September. And that's that's one area that I haven't done a lot of work in. We're, just, we're doing Lake Clark for this one. Um, but it's always fascinated me because it's another one of these very diverse areas. And I think you guys all, all four of you guys have a lot more experience there than I do. But the challenge that I'm finding not only is it setting aside the time, but you know, you, you can find everything that you find in Yellowstone in Alaska, but it's much more spread out, right? It's not as confined. And so for me, at least, um, you know, it's a, it's been more challenging, um, finding time to get up there and really explore it properly. But, uh, we're going to go see the bears up there and, uh, yeah. So it's, it's returning to a full slate. I think next year is going to be even busier. So you won't, you won't regret adding Alaska. It's just, I mean, everywhere you look, you, you want to photograph wildlife up there with a wide angle lens as much as possible. Obviously that's not always possible with bears, but there are some areas up there where it is honestly, but the, the scenery, the backdrops that you can get with these images of in September, Lake Clark, it's a little bit later on. So you might even be able to pick up on some fishing bears still. Um, the, the backdrops you're going to get with these, bears running around the river are just spectacular and you can't 
that's the first thing that you notice when you get off the airplane, step outside the airport, and you look around in Anchorage. Everywhere is a postcard, you know, in every direction that you look. And then the, the biodiversity, you know, it's, it's different than what we see here. Everything's bigger. Yeah, someday I want to see one of those monster moose because the moose we have in Yellowstone are miniatures compared to those moose up there. So and and muskox. That's that's probably my next really target species. Is I want to photograph muskox and I would like to do it in the fall color, but that's tough to time. So photographing them with that blowing snow, I think that would be just. It wouldn't even be a close second. It would be you know, a parallel first. You know, this this trip that I'm going to be doing, Lake Clark, of course, is primarily about the bears, as some of these areas are. And uh, I think when I was up there last, we did get lucky, saw a wolf, and we had fox sightings and a few birds, but it's all about the bears. But it is interesting to me that you can go different places and see the different species, uh, the same species, I should say, and have completely different experiences. So I have a lot of experience with Yellowstone grizzlies. I've done trips to the Great Bear Rainforest where they have their own grizzly bears. But then you go up to, and all three of these experiences, you you know add Alaska to that list, all three bear experiences are completely different. And the, you know, I think the, the personalities of the bears are different and the way they interact with people is completely different too. So I could say that I'm just going up to Alaska to photograph bears, which I've seen, but it is something that is different and is a departure from the other stuff that I've done in the past too. So, so that's kind of nice to, to be able to mix that in. And of course, in this case, because I'm bringing clients, if there are people who have never been to Alaska and had that really close personal experience and those types of encounters, I think they'll be blown away by it. So that's always fun to see. <laughs> if they're not, they're taking them. Well, and you don't even need them. Like, I mean, that's the thing. You don't even need them to be fishing. For like sure. when, when I went up, I did the scouting trip and it was mid-September and the fish run had started early. And so I literally saw a bear chase a salmon one time and then that was it for the rest of my stay. It didn't matter though. It would have been great to get more action like that, but you still have this variety of experiences and, you know, going from the beach to the long grass, grassy meadows with those brilliant colors and everything like that. And then you got the mountains in the background. So, so yeah, I mean, there's still, yeah. So, so much different stuff that you can capture. I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty special up there. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, just hearing the stories that we've heard tonight, Max, I think you need to change your logo to uh, four leaf clover. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. All right. Lucky Max. <laughs> Lucky Max Adventures. <laughs> no, it's 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 earned. I'm not trying to dismiss the amount of time. And it usually is luck, though, sure. in certain situations. Being able to like drive down that road in winter in Yellowstone last year, and oh look, there's a coyote that's feeding on a carcass. Um, didn't think much of it. The whole reason that I I stopped at that moment was because there was a magpie that was dancing around the snow. And the magpie is a very photogenic bird, but is also kind of shy. And I don't, I didn't have many magpie photos. And so I, I told my group, well, you know, here's a magpie and a coyote together. Let's see if we can get them together. And so we get out and we set up and whatever. I mean, I was still having fun with the magpie thing. And then I realized whatever the coyote is feeding on, well, the fur color didn't look right. And sure enough, it pulls up a red fox carcass, right? Which, and that's one of the most, well, one of the rarest or most unique, let's say, encounters I've ever had, right? So... I, I would mark that down as luck and luck from the standpoint of I stopped for a completely different reason and then look what unfolded here, right? It was just something totally unexpected. And so, yeah, luck, luck is a big part of it, but, um, but sometimes, you know, maybe, I don't know if other people would have stopped if they just saw the coyote feeding on the carcass. And I was fortunate to flag a few friends down and so they could share the experience as well. But, uh, but yeah, in that case, it was just uh, something there, sort of the, the unique visual of having the magpie and the coyote, two common species together that did it. And uh, yeah, sometimes your instincts lead to greater treasures, I suppose, right? Well, I will say that, so this conversation started with an introduction that Kate and Adam Rice made last year while actually, yeah, Jason and I both were out there in Yellowstone. We were in different spots photographing a pair of wolves and uh, they were absolutely correct. Having you on as a guest has been fantastic. And I think people are going to enjoy your stories or have enjoyed your stories at this point. So 
just for those listening that want to travel with Lucky Max, how do they how do they find you? Well, you know, first of all, I I, I got to say that you know during my <laughs> bachelor party, and I don't talk too much about that, but it was in Vegas. And I had a good run at the craps table and somebody started calling me baby cakes. So instead of Lucky Max, if you want to call me baby cakes, then I'll put up with that at least. So we're going to, we're going to, you know what? I'm going to stick with Lucky Max just for. Yeah, let's not get the wrong idea. <laughs> so nobody right. asks um, questions. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, first of all, thank you for having me on. And um, I, I will say that if people want to find out more about my work, of course, I am on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I mainly use Twitter to follow science accounts. Uh, there's always some interesting biologists, biology news and stuff like that. Um, but you can search for at Maxwaugh photo, M-A-X-W-A-U-G-H photo. And uh, you'll find me there. And then my website is just maxwa.com. And uh, usually what you'll find on there is, of course, you know, the the galleries I'm way behind on processing. And then there is a workshops and tours page. So you can see the full full collection of trips. And, uh, you know, I've kind of got the ske schedule set for the next two years. In addition to the ones we talked about, I have a brand new tour to Zambia. I just scouted Zambia in September. And uh, that should be pretty amazing, too. So there's, there's a lot to check out on there. And, uh, yeah, hopefully people will find something they're interested in. Absolutely. We will. Thank you for your time, Max. And, you know, Jason ran into you this last trip. I met you last year when we were out. Can't wait to run into you again. We'll definitely be seeing you guys in the park. And then hopefully, uh, yeah, we'll be able to spend a little bit of time shooting, shooting in the field too. So. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.